Hey, and welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast. We're so glad you're here to join us. We hope that this podcast inspires you to live life both for God and your city. Make sure to subscribe to stay up to date with all of our most recent episodes. And remember to leave us a five-star rating. Enjoy the message. Today we close out our message series talking about that guy. And we could spend a couple years on a message series talking about that guy. Uh, We have been that guy. We know that guy. Uh, But we're going to wrap it up today and I'm going to be talking to you uh, about uh, the high cost of low character. We're going to be looking at the life of Joab. Joab was one of David's generals. We're going to get into that here in just a second. But as we start out, I want you to know that a character is on everybody's mind right now. In fact, I want to read an article. Well, I don't want to read the whole article, but just a a couple lines out of this article beyond the resume, why hiring for character matters more than credentials. Um, You know, you see a resume, you can see accomplishments and achievements, but that doesn't tell the whole story. Uh, Character really matters. Um, From Inc. Magazine, the link between principles and profitability is incontrovertible. A business will be more successful and profitable if its leaders model values-based leadership in order to create a strong culture of character. The C-suite should hire individuals who similarly espouse values-based leadership. Such management is exhibited by leaders who live their lives with integrity, ethics, and values, and those who hire based on character, competence, and potential. Character matters a whole lot. How many of you know that today? Character is really, it's needed more today than just about ever before. It seems like it to me at least. Uh, We need character in the school. How many of you want teachers to have high character and integrity to be teaching your kids? Um, We need character in our family, in our city, in our neighborhood. We need character in our city government. We've, we've been reminded of that recently. Um, and you, you might be going, well, what situation are you talking about? Look, there's a lot of stuff going on all over the world all the time where character bubbles up or a lack of character bubbles up to the top. How many of you know we need character in our state? We need character in our nation today. Somebody's going to say, well, pastor, we really need character in the White House. It's true. We need character in the White House. This week, I'm reminded of that as we have, you know, legislation and executive orders coming out saying that we want to make hormone therapy and sex change operations available to minors, you know, at very young ages. Where is our character today, right? And listen, here's the thing. No matter who's in office, let me tell you, we, we need character in the White House But we need to be very careful when we're talking about character in the White House because we also need character in the church house. Who are, on what foundation do we stand when we're pointing out people's flaws when we have character blind spots in our own lives? So I want to talk to you about the high cost of low character today. Now let me give you a word to you, and this word is not only to you, but this word is for you. I want, and listen, I want you to hear me. I want you to do well in life. I I want you to excel. I want you to succeed at what it is that you do. And I I believe this is biblical. I I don't think that 
God calls us to just manage whatever has been given us. The Bible tells us right at the beginning to go and take dominion over the earth. I believe we ought to leave our town better. We ought to leave our family better. Your family ought to be better because you existed. Have you had some problems? Absolutely. If you're living and breathing, there's some things you'd like to do over again. But from this moment, we ought to be able to say, I'm going to give God everything that I have and whatever he's put in my hand, whatever I've found, whatever my hand has found to do, I want to do it for the glory of God. Is that a good word? I mean, that's scripture. I want you to do well. I want you to move forward. And in doing that, we use our talents and our abilities and our giftings and our skills. The things that God has given us innately and the things that we've learned and developed and accumulated in our lives. But listen, I want to give you a warning today. Don't let your gift take you where your character can't keep you. I want us to be blessed. And here's, here's a prayer that I literally pray for myself. God, bless me, but don't bless me one bit more than what I can handle. Let's move forward, but God, if moving forward causes me to lose out on you, I don't want one more thing. Don't let your gift take you to where your character can't keep you. Now, let me give you a word about others. I'll give this word to you, though. Because you need to also, while you're developing yourself, you also need to create a, uh, a security system around you as it pertains to the people that are influential in your life, okay? Here's the deal. One of the most dangerous people that you can have around you is a highly communicative, high competency, low character person. Somebody that is influential and has charisma with other people that's good at what they do, but they have low character and you can't trust them. Now, these people are hard to spot because low character people, 98% of the time, are doing high integrity things. It's the 2% of the time that'll get you. You know that person that says, hey man, I've got your back. Don't worry, I've got your back. And 98% of the time, they have your back. And then when you get down in it and you need them to have your back and you look back and you're like, yeah, way back. (laughs) That low character person that you have entrusted because of their skills and their giftings, sometimes we overlook things, who people are and entrust them with high responsibility and then their past behavior shows up in their future behavior. It's a very challenging person. I'm going to show you, now this isn't, this isn't saying that if you've made mistakes in your life, you've done low character things, you've had low character in your past. Listen, aren't you thankful that God redeems and transforms us? I'm really glad because if he didn't, we're all toast. We're all kindling. You know, we're all about to split hell wide open. We're, thank God that we're not saved by ourselves. We're saved by Jesus. And thank God that when we come to Jesus, those old things are passed away and then we become a new creation. Always trying to drill it into you. We are not who we used to be. We are also not who we're going to be. But Pathway Church, listen to me right now. There is something we need to leave behind when we move forward in Jesus. Jesus is not just a trinket, an accessory, a Nike swoosh that we add to our outfit. No, Jesus changes everything in our life, or he should. The Bible tells us we can't serve two masters. 
And when we come to Jesus, we've got to go all the way in with him. When we do, there will be things that come up in our lives, but we've got to stay submitted to the Lord. We really need a revival of holiness, a revival of sanctification, a revival of purity, righteousness. Now, and I'm, I'm not talking about some kind of pretend legalism, but I'm saying that what happens on the inside of us when Christ comes in our life ought to show up on the outside of us at some point. Don't you agree? Pathway Church, love Jesus, hate sin. Go after Jesus, turn your back on the world. Amen. That's a good message. Go home. No, don't go home, but that's where, that's where we want to get. Okay, today. Now go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 18, and we're going to read uh, starting at verse 2. As we do, I want to kind of frame this up for where we are. We're reading about King David. We're reading about his empire. And as we're reading, you know, you think of David as a man after God's own heart. He was an incredible man. David was a complex man. David was not perfect. The only, David did not commit only one sin. You know, it wasn't just what he did with Bathsheba and what he did with Uriah, the Hittite. But there were some things that David did with his family where he did not constrain behavior that he should have constrained. And it goes on to cause his family to be busted up pretty substantially. And David had to pay for this over the course of his life. And um, this is where we find ourselves. His son Absalom had rallied the people to Absalom and away from David. Like one of the things Absalom would do is he would go to the city, city gate and when people would come uh, looking for justice, he they would come looking for help in a situation, then no matter whether or not they were right or wrong, Absalom would say, here, tell me your case. Tell me what's going on with you. They would tell him, he said, oh man, I'm so sorry to hear that. If only, if only you had someone here that could decide your case favorably. Basically saying, look, David can't do that. But man, if I was in this place, then I would treat you right. So what he did is he accumulated a kingdom within the kingdom. And he was working to turn people against David, who was God's anointed king. And so in Second uh, Samuel chapter 18, we find Absalom arrayed against David. In fact, this became so intense that David was run out of his own town as king. And as he went out, one time as he went out, uh, there, there were just common people mocking him down the street. There was one man chasing him as he was leaving, cursing him. Who curses a king? Who curses a dictator? You know, Ronald Reagan tells a story that he was talking to Khrushchev or something like that. And uh, uh, Reagan said, you know, in America... Uh, I can walk right into the president's office and I can pound on the table and say, Mr. President, I don't like how you're running this country. And Khrushchev said, well, we can do that in the Soviet Union too. I can walk right into the Kremlin, pound on the table, and I can say, I don't like how that U.S. president is running his country. <laughs> it's pretty good. You can't talk like that to a dictator. You can't talk like that to a king. You can say whatever you want in a free republic and a democracy because they're elected but a king sets the values and sets a law by his own determination and so if you say something to king david then on david's whim david could kill you david could throw you away but he was so deposed 
that commoners on the street were chasing him down the road, cursing David. Solomon had brought this to a head. In chapter 18, now they're arrayed in battle against one another. Here's what the scripture says, starting in verse two. He sent the troops out in three groups, placing one group under Joab. Say his name with me. Joab. Joab was uh, um, placing under Joab, one under Joab's brother, Abishai. We'll want to remember his name also. In fact, let me just say this really quickly. Abishai was one of David's mighty men of valor. And so you'll see him in that list of famous people that surrounded David over in 2 Samuel chapter 23. And then, uh, and Abishai was a son of Zariah, just like Joab was. And one under Ittai, the man from Gath. The king told his troops, I am going out with you. This is the kind of king, the kind of leader David was. He would say, I'm not gonna ask you to do something that I wouldn't do myself. So if we're going through some tough things, I'm gonna go through some tough things with you. But his men objected strongly. You must not go, they urged, if we have to turn and run, and even if half of us die, it will make no difference to Absalom's troops. They will be looking only for you. You are worth more than 10,000 of us. And it is better that you stay here in the town and send help, and send help if we need it. If you think that's the best plan, I'll do it, the king answered. So he stood alongside the gate of the town as all the troops marched out in groups of hundreds and thousands. So there's David at the gate watching all the troops go out. He's honoring them. He's saluting them. They're saluting him. He's giving them fist bumps. He's, you know, he's firing up. He, I don't know what he's doing. I'm just imagining like this William Wallace moment. He's riding his horse back and forth. He's clanging his, his sword on his shield. He's hyping everybody up. There's warriors. He's sending them out as warriors. He's gonna receive them back as warriors. And keep in mind, Israel is fighting for him And previously, David had fought for them. And when no one could fight, David was the one that was fighting. Just thinking about it, what a powerful moment, especially in the face of a great rebellion that was taking place. And the king gave this command. He gave this command to Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. I'm assuming he gave this as they were all arrayed. They had gone out the city gates. Maybe they turned and they faced David and David gave them instruction. His voice must have been lifted because they all heard, you'll see, they all heard what he had to say. This must have been a powerful, very inspirational conversation or challenge. He said this to his three generals and he said it in front of his men, making these generals accountable to his men. He said, for my sake, deal gently with young Absalom. He said, my son has turned his back on me. He's divided the empire. There's been so much killing and death and there's been difficulty. You can't have war without great difficulty, inflation, gas prices, all of the things. Think about the people in the Ukraine. They're fighting for their homes. Their homes are being shelled. There's nothing to go back to, but that's their land. They're fighting for that. This is the same place that David was in. The Bible says, and all the troops heard the king give his this order to his commanders to deal gently with Absalom. Jump down to verse nine. During the battle, Absalom happened to come upon some of his David, some of David's men. He tried to escape on his mule, but as he rode beneath the thick branches of a great tree, his hair got caught in the tree. Now let me pause. If you go back and read just before verse nine, you'll see that 20,000 of Absalom's men were killed and a lot of them were lost to the forest. 
The forest was a, it was a thick place. It was a dangerous place. So it gives you an idea of what Absalom was riding into. So he's caught by his hair, hanging in this great tree. His mule kept going and left him dangling in the air. One of David's men saw what had happened and told Joab, I saw Absalom dangling from a great tree. What? Joab demanded, you saw him there and didn't kill him? I would have rewarded you with 10 pieces of silver and a hero's belt. But listen to how perceptive and how wise and how obedient, how faithful one of David's men was in the face of the top commander, the commander of all of David's forces. He said, I would not kill the king's son for even a thousand pieces of silver. The man replied to Joab, we all heard the king say to you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, please spare young Absalom. And if I had betrayed the king by killing his son and the king would certainly find out who did it, you yourself would be the first one to abandon me. Enough of this nonsense, Absalom said. Then he took three daggers and plunged them into, the, into Absalom's heart as he dangled still alive in the great tree. It's a terrible situation. If you read on through this passage, you'll hear about how the messenger, an Ethiopian messenger ran to take this message. And then uh, 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 another priest who was also a messenger very fast, uh, Ahimaaz ran to take the message to, to David. And, um, you know, David was in anguish that he lost his son. He was caught between a rock and the hard place, doing what was right and facing down his own flesh and blood that he raised that came up in his house that he had dreams for and hopes for only to see his son turn his back on him. Joab took a really terrible situation and made it so much more terrible. Here's who Joab is. Joab is uh, connected to three of David's mighty men. Two are his brothers and one of them was his armor bearer. One of his armor bearers may have actually been there when Absalom died. Three are listed in David's mighty men, yet Joab is not. Joab was his most effective warrior, but he was low character. Joab is David's nephew. He's son of Zariah. Zariah is David's sister. So there's Joab, there's Abishai. The rest of her boys were running down in this whole thing is a very complex relational situation. Joab was commander of David's army. Think about this. Joab led David's men against the Jebusites at Jerusalem, giving Jerusalem back to David. That's the day that Jerusalem became known as the city of David. Let me tell you, David not only loved Absalom, but David loved Joab. There was a relational connection and Yet Joab did some truly terrible things to David. I'll, I'll share some of these with you. I just want you to understand how close David was. See, the, here's the thing that when we read this passage here, we need to understand that the character problem was exposed. Joab's character problem was exposed when Joab and his brother did something even prior to Absalom. Absalom's death should not have surprised David. Let me back up to some previous battles. There was a previous battle and Abner was the ma uh, commander over the enemy that was up against David. And in this battle, Joab witnessed Abner, the leader of this other army, this other people, kill Joab's brother 
in battle. And when he killed him in battle, and these were military men fighting military men. It wasn't like Joab's brother was just having a coffee. It wasn't like he was just in his home and somebody shelled his home or, you know, right now they're documenting abuses that are taking place in the Ukraine. It's not like his hands were bound and he was executed. It wasn't like he, uh, Abner had committed uh, an atrocity and then was put on trial and then Joab killed him. But here's what happened. David and Abner, after the battle, came and they met in a state-level meeting, publicly. And David affirmed and platformed Abner, and they had peace, and the war went away. And Joab was concerned that Abner was going to be placed as a commander, displacing Joab. And so very calculating, Joab said, you know what? Yes, he killed my brother, but he's also a political threat to me. And so when Abner walked into the city gates... Joab, in a time of peace, assassinated Abner. It's a really terrible thing. And David wept and mourned after Abner, who had pledged loyalty to David, was killed by by Joab, David's right-hand man. And when he did, when this terrible thing happened, then we see David being exposed for the character problem that he had. This is before Uriah the Hittite. This is before he made this mistake, this, he grievously sinned with um, Bathsheba. But when Joab betrayed David by killing Abner, David stuttered in his response and changed the values of his kingdom and his own leadership. Listen to 2 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 38. Then King David said to his officials, don't you realize that a great commander has fallen today in Israel? He was talking about Abner. And even though I am the anointed king, these two sons of Zariah, of my sister, Joab and Abishai are too strong for me to control. So may the Lord pay these, repay these evil men for their evil deeds. Just listen to that last thing he said. He said, they're too strong for me, so I'm not gonna repay them for their evil deeds. I can't do it. They're, they're bigger than me. Even though I'm the king, they have more influence, more power, more initiative. So God is gonna have to deal with them. So David publicly weeps, publicly mourns Abner and does nothing about the sin in his own kingdom. David knew exactly who Joab was before Absalom ever happened. And he went on leading his kingdom. So there's Abner, David, being unwilling to confront the low character of Joab that day. And on that day, David lost something in the leadership mandate that God had given him. Let me tell you today, Your failure to confront low character in your life, in the lives of the people that are close to you, will cost you something. Moms and dads, I just want you to look at me really good. Employers, I want you to look at me really good. Employees, people that are working, you're going to school. You're living in this world where character is like an elective. You don't even have to have it. Listen, if you fail to confront the low character in the lives of the people you're responsible for and your own, pe- in your own life, it will cost you something. Do you hear what I'm telling you today? 
There is a drought, a famine of character in 2022. Pathway Church, we've got to be different. Do you hear what I'm saying? We've got to be different. There ought to be a difference between the saved and the unsaved. It's not that the saved are better and the unsaved are worse, but when God gets a hold of us, it ought to change everything about us. I've said it before. You know, there aren't two kinds of people in the world, the saved and the unsaved. There are two kinds of people in the world, everybody and Jesus, or Jesus and everybody else. And if we're standing with Jesus, it's not because we're so good, it's because Jesus saved us and transformed us. And if Jesus saved us and transformed us, shouldn't we give every single arena of our life to the Lord and say, God, you saved me, you transformed me, you write my name in the Lamb's book of life, but then you cause the kingdom of God to show up in my life so that how I live reflects your character. That's not old fashioned, is it? That's just the Bible. That's just the Bible. Failure to confront low character will cause you to lose something. David knew who Joab was, and when David came face to face with his own character issues, which we'll see with Bathsheba and Uriah, because David had been exposed and Joab had been exposed, when he needed to do a cleanup job, he knew exactly who to call. He saw it with Abner. And then when he hooked up with Bathsheba and got Bathsheba pregnant, he organized all that stuff. He saw Bathsheba and then he brought Bathsheba into his palace. And then when she got pregnant, remember what he did? He called Uriah. He said, Uriah, come back from the front lines. I need to talk to you. He says, listen, take some time with your wife. He was hoping that he would go in and be with her. And then you know, she's pregnant, but then he would think that he got her pregnant. And remember, Uriah said, no, I can't do this. While my men are at war, I cannot enjoy my wife like this. And David's cover-up plan didn't work. So then here's what, here's what David did. Second Samuel chapter 11 and verse 14. And listen to who pops right back up in this situation. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then he will pull back, uh, then pull back so that he will be killed. Who did he give this letter to? Uriah? And Uriah gave it to Joab. Once Joab and David cooperated in this situation to kill Uriah, David was complicit with the low character issues of the commander that would not follow David. And in effect, at that moment, David was owned by Joab. It's like this blackmailable issue. He was being blackmailed or controlled or heavily influenced by Joab. And you know, that's not foreign to us. Because at each, in each one of our lives, if we're following Jesus, we have come to places where we've been faced 
with opportunity to serve the Lord. And when we step out, we've heard the enemy whisper in our ear. And he said something along the lines of, if you put yourself out like this, I'm going to show you for the fraud that you are. Who are you to share your faith? Who are you to serve? You're, you're a fraud. You're phony. And the enemy is blackmailing you, using your low character in your past to keep you frozen where you are. Let me just tell you what you do with blackmail. Let me just tell you what you do when somebody gets you in a corner and is holding your past over your head. When the enemy tries to remind you of what you've done to cause you to be frozen, here's what you do. You just go ahead and say, you know what? The enemy's trying to keep me back and he's trying to hold my past over me. Well, it's true. I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a manipulator. I'm a womanizer. I'm a, whatever it is. He's all, I'm an abuser. I'm a, I've been addicted. All of those things. But you know what? That's not who I still am. God has changed me. He's saved me. He's cleansed me. He's transformed me. And I'm not that anymore. Yes, I still struggle with some things, but God has been faithful to me. So devil, whoop, there it is. That's all I got. It's time to move forward. And when you take the blackmailer, when you take the hostage taker and you throw your stuff out there. He has nothing else over you. You know what that's called? That's called a testimony. That's called, I was a sinner and now I'm saved. I was addicted and now I'm free. I was in bondage, but now I'm delivered. I was in a miry pit, but now my feet are on solid ground. I'm not where I want to be yet, but I'm also not where I was. God is at work in me. And if God can work in me, there's nobody he can't work. You know, doing the right thing, it comes with a price. But the truth is, doing the wrong thing comes with a price too. And so, here's what I want to say. Pay now or pay later. Do the right thing. In the words of the great theologian Spike Lee, do the right thing. It's always the right time to do the right thing. Some people think they can avoid conflict. You can't avoid conflict. You can only delay it. Why not deal with that tree while it's a little sapling than letting it grow into be some great oak? The quicker we run to our dysfunction, the quicker we run to these kinds of contentions, the better off we are. It's always the right time to do the right thing. First Peter chapter three and verse 14 uh, Peter says, but even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. And then James chapter four and verse 17, James, which is the most common sense, straightforward epistle in the whole Bible. It's just like a, a blue jeans gospel. He says this, he says, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Pathway church, be holy because God is holy. Let me go back to the beginning with Absalom and you know, Absalom happens. Absalom, his King David's own son, rebels against David. David loved his son, didn't want him to be killed. Joab killed Absalom knowing that David wanted him to be treated kindly, to, to be taken alive. And what we see here is that Joab's low character caused the death of David's son. 
but we can go one step further. That David, King David's low character, created a platform and an opportunity for Joab and his low character to kill David's son. You know, there's a saying, I don't even know where it came from, but it says that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and make you pay more than you want to pay. There is a high cost for low living. There is a high cost for low character. I'm praying that God would continue to refine us and that our homes, there would be integrity in our homes, there would be integrity in our church, there would be integrity in our community, and we would lead the way. And as we do, that there wouldn't only be high character, but there would be high grace. And that we can walk with people as they fail and as they make mistakes, and we put our arms around them because the truth, every single one of us have needed God's arm around us as we've launched out with him only to fail. How many times? How many times? 70 times seven is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, it's not really a math problem. It's do this. When you fail, pursue Jesus. When you fail, pursue Jesus. Pathway Church, don't be weary in well-doing, but also don't be weary when things don't go well. Keep loving Jesus. Hang in there. My dad would say it like this. He would say, hang in there like a hair in a biscuit. You know what I mean? Just don't quit. You can't get rid of me. You know, I'm not going away. Listen, don't be tired. Don't get discouraged. Don't get frustrated. Keep reaching out to God. And listen, pathway, when you see your brothers or your sisters caught up in sin or in a fault, be gentle and gently restore them in faith. Love them every single step of the way. So here's the end. Payday's coming for Joab. You know, he killed Abner, he killed Absalom, he killed a lot of other people too. There was stuff that happened before he got in the kingdom, before he was a leader. There were things, people he dealt with. I, I don't even have time. The resume was there. And you know, this is what happens. Sometimes we partner ourselves with people because they're highly competent. We love being around them. There's great chemistry, but man, they'll cut you. They'll stab you the moment that it becomes beneficial. David was transferring authority. He's on his deathbed. His last words are there. Second Samuel 23. He's recounting all of this stuff. He's transferring authority over to Solomon. He would be the next King. David had a number of sons. But Solomon was going to be the king. Well, Joab looked at the situation and he thought, you know, I could better control Adonijah than I could control Solomon. So the commander of all of David's army aligns himself with a man that David did not choose. He was making a power play. Joab was like the puppet master in the kingdom of David. And when he heard that David had chosen Solomon, things got really bad, really quick for Joab. So when David was on his deathbed, he was informed that Joab had fled to the tabernacle at Gibeon. They're in the tent. And he had run up in there afraid for his life. But he thought, if I can get to the tabernacle, I can get to the sanctuary, I'll be safe. 
And let me tell you what Joab was not doing. Joab was not repenting. Joab was not returning to God. Joab yet again was being manipulative of the king. And he went right up in there. And the the Bible said that he had grabbed the horns of the altar. Solomon sent Benaniah in to deal with Joab. Solomon knew exactly who he was. You know, Solomon had seen what had happened to his family and what had happened to his dad. And let me tell you, I'm a pastor's kid. You know, when I was 14 years old, I walked out into the church parking lot and I heard two guys from the church eating my dad's lunch. They were talking bad about my dad. I, you know what? I wanted to fight him right there. You know, I said something to him. You know, I was 14 years old. That's pretty terrible, isn't it? I wanted to poke both of those guys right in the throat, you know? Solomon, Solomon saw all that stuff. He saw all of it. He saw all of the palace intrigue. And he had just been waiting. He saw what happened to Absalom. I don't think David, I don't think Solomon liked what Absalom was doing, but that's his brother. You know what my brother and I, we used to have, get big fights. We're less than two years apart. And my brother's, we're competitive. I mean, his, his size was, was, was pretty big. And we, we get in these big fights go toe to toe you know my dad's rule he got so burdensome on my dad watching us fight that he came up with a rule he said look if one of you cry you both get a whipping right he's just trying to do everything that he could to order that up you know my brother and I fight but you mess with my brother you're gonna get me you mess with me you're gonna get my brother I know that's how Solomon felt and so when Joab goes running into the tabernacle Solomon says baby it's time for my first executive order and he sent Benaniah in there into that tabernacle and, and, and with orders to kill Joab. And Joab, Benaniah said, come on out. He said, I'm not coming out. I'm staying right here at the altar. Benaniah didn't know what to do. He was caught between Solomon and a holy place. And he went back to Solomon. He said, I don't know what to do. He's in there and Solomon's like, didn't I already tell you what to do? Go in there and kill that joker. Well, check this out. Solomon knew what he was talking about. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 14, there's a law for this. And the law says this, if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Drag him away. It said, my kingdom is more important than your manipulation. And listen, God loves your family. He loves the people around you, but we have a just God. It's important that we come to Christ and we're honorable for him because he loves, he loves us. He also loves the people that are around us. They kill, they take him out. And we see in first Kings chapter two, that Joab was killed by Benaniah at the command of Solomon while holding on to the horns of the altar. What a thing. All of it could have been avoided. If David would have recognized the low character, what would that kingdom have been like? Now, David gets all kinds of recognition and all kinds of praise, but you know what? There's just a lot of drama that could have been avoided. And along those lines, I just want to say to you today, there is a high cost for low character in our lives. None of us are perfect. But I would call you pathway to a life of holiness and a life of purity before the Lord. I want to close with this. Charles Spurgeon's sermon number 271 that was given on August 21st, 1859. And he's talking about Joab. I'm gonna let him transition this 
from an Old Testament story to the way that Jesus does business right now. Here's what he said. Joab, when he fled from the sword of Solomon, laid hold on the horns of the altar, thinking that surely when he had laid hold on that altar, he was safe. He was in vain confidence, for he was dragged from the horns of the altar and slain. But if you can lay on hold on the horns of the altar of God, even Christ, you are most surely safe, and no sword of vengeance can ever reach you. He said, I saw the other day a remarkable picture which I shall use as an illustration of the way of salvation by faith in Jesus. An offender had committed a crime for which he must die, but it was in the olden time when churches were considered to be sanctuaries. That's kind of funny to hear Charles Spurgeon in 1859 talk about the olden days. He said, churches were considered to be sanctuaries in which criminals might hide themselves and so escape. See the transgressor, he, he runs towards the church, the guards pursue him with their drawn swords, all athirst for his blood. They pursue him even to the church door. He rushes up the steps and just as they are about to overtake him and hew him in pieces on the threshold of the church, out comes the bishop and holding up the crucifix, he cries, back, back, stain not the precincts of God's house with blood, stand back. And the guards at once respect the emblem and stand back while the poor fugitive hides himself behind the robes of the priest. It is even so with Christ. The guilty sinner flies to the cross, flies straight away to Jesus. And though justice pursues him, Christ lifts up his wounded hands and cries, justice, stand back stand back. I shelter the sinner in the secret place of my tabernacle. Do I hide him? I will not suffer him to perish for he puts his trust in me. Praise be to God. Aren't you thankful for that today? Come on, somebody bless the Lord right now. We hope you've been blessed by this week's podcast. Make sure to subscribe to stay up to date with all of our most recent episodes and visit pathwaychurch.us give. We'll see you next week.